Howdy, Ghastly Ghouls. I'm your host, Lee. And I'm Devin. Welcome to Ghastly. Devin, what's new with you? We went on a waterfall hike today, which is super awesome. It was raining outside. It was raining. I love rain. And now I'm drinking a mimosa and we're about to do some murder. Trying to fight off some Sunday scaries by making our Sunday even scarier with the story because it's horrible. That's right. All right, Devin, we are venturing far outside of the USA for this case. Ooh, where are we going? In France and Japan, both. How was it in France and Japan? You'll find out. There's not an anime murder, is there? No, but I need to find one (laughs) to tell you because you would be so excited. An anime-themed murder. Today's episode is about a massive and terrifying case of injustice occurring in both France and Japan, like I said, by the same wretched man. And this is a warning that this episode is one of our most brutal and graphic ones that we've done so far. I would say it's a 10 out of 10. Lee, we've brutality. done a lot of graphic, so you're saying it's that bad. It was that bad to me. Oof. Okay, well, let's get into it. Let's hop in. Devin's putting a black beanie over his eyes so he can imagine this story. I'm going to immerse myself. It's 1973, a dark night in Tokyo, Japan, and the city is asleep. A tall, beautiful woman who previously moved to Tokyo from Germany is fast asleep in her Tokyo home like every other night. But unlike every other night, there is a man in her room. What? Who she did not invite there. An intruder has broken into her home and now sneaks into her room while she sleeps. This woman, who will remain unnamed in the story, has no clue that this man saw her in public and became absolutely infatuated with her beauty, her height, her long legs, and the fact that she's Caucasian. He followed her around Tokyo until he found out where she lived. He has been watching her through her window without her knowledge, and after watching her for quite some time, he decides it's finally time to escalate his crime and enter her home where she believes she's safe every night. Most importantly, this man has been fantasizing about cannibalism his entire life. Oh, come on, Lee. And the reason he's obsessed with her is because he wants to eat her. He sneaks inside her home, into her room, and his movement is a bit too loud as he tries to grab her umbrella to attack her with. He does not come armed. The woman wakes up to the sound of him, and she screams loud. Luckily if you can even call anything in this story luck. This woman towers over her intruder, who is a man that only reaches about five feet tall. Mm, what? She's easily able to overpower him and fight him off, still screaming for help. This scares the man off, and he runs out of her home into the darkness of the night. Let's go. But police are able to later locate him and arrest him for attempted rape. This man's name is Issei Sagawa, a 24-year-old man from Tokyo. Issei's father is wealthy, and he pays this woman a huge amount of cash to drop the attempted rape charge against his creep of a son. The charge was attempted rape because police do not know at this time that Issei actually did not intend to rape the woman, but intended to cut off pieces of her buttock to later eat, but wanted to keep her alive. 
or so oh, he claims. Gosh. Anyways, this German woman accepts the settlement money from Issei's father, and Issei is free to roam the world with no criminal record. I hope she moved. Yeah, She's although back for round two. Terrified and traumatized, she thankfully is safe and she is not missing any of her flesh. And I'm sure she moved a dresser in front of her door every night for the rest of her life. So before I move forward with the story chronologically, I want to talk about Issei's childhood. When someone is a cannibal, a stalker, a creep, a rapist, their childhood is very important to dissect, so let's rewind. So it's April 26, 1949, and little baby Issei Sagawa is born in Kobe, Japan. He is a prematurely born baby, so premature that he could literally fit in his father's hand. He struggles with health issues in infancy, such as small intestine disease, but grows healthier with age, although he remains fragile and prone to health issues as a child. His father, Akira, like I mentioned, is an extremely successful businessman, and he's the president of Kurita Water Industries. Partially because of Issei's health issues and physical fragility, he is notably reclusive and introverted in childhood. He develops insecurities and self-hatred related to his small appearance, and he notices that girls never flirt with him or develop crushes on him or really give him any attention. He feels unattractive, undesirable, and rejected, and he also is made fun of for having legs that look like sticks and for being way smaller than all the other boys and smaller than a lot of the girls. This is sad. I'm a firm believer in feeling so bad and so much empathy toward children who are bullied and insecure or abused, and it's clear in this story that he becomes very demented partially because of this. And you just can't help but to feel so sad for the child that was abused enough to end up the way that he ends up, but there is no sympathy for the adult. True. Issei's cannibalistic thoughts begin shockingly early in life. As a young child, he is fascinated with the fairy tale Hansel and Gretel, where a woman uses candy to lure two children into her home to eat them. It's his favorite book. He also has a dream that burned a really deep memory into his brain. In this dream, his uncle is holding him and I believe his brother and slowly lowering them into a cauldron of boiling water to cook and eat the children. Mm, Okay. Just a dream, but he takes this to heart. But keep in mind, this is purely in a dream. This is not in real life. Many children would just consider this a nightmare, but he is intrigued instead. His first recollection of having cannibalistic thoughts about other people is when he is in first grade, which is about six to seven years old, and he sees a male classmate's thigh. (laughs) Most first graders would see a thigh and think, hey, there's a leg. We all have them. There's nothing special. Let's move on to look at something else, but not Issei. He sees this thigh and thinks, juicy. I want to know what it tastes like. Mm. This looks meaty. And this is a thought pattern that he allows to continue and intentionally feeds for years to come. Although this first cannibalistic thought is regarding a male, he goes on to think cannibalistic thoughts about primarily females throughout his life. His messed up thoughts were not just related to humans, though. Issei also is known to partake in bestiality with his family dog as he reaches puberty, which shows that he really doesn't put effort into controlling his disgusting fantasies and sexual urges. When he has gone through puberty and is as grown as he'll ever be, he stands a mere five feet tall or 152 centimeters. 
and he feels deeply insecure about being so short. His entire life, he has been reclusive and regularly retreats into literature and poetry as an escape from life. His personality is described as shy, quiet, introverted, unassuming, and non-threatening. People just think that he is a sweet, quiet kid, but unbeknownst to his peers and family, Issei sees females and wants to know what their meat tastes like, craves eating them, and especially their glutes and thighs. And Issei particularly develops a fascination and craving for tall Caucasian females. This lands us back at the terrifying night in 1973, where 24-year-old Issei sneaks into the German woman's home in a thwarted attempt to cannibalize her, then gets fought off, flees, gets arrested, then gets off free after his dad pays the victim to drop charges. And here lies another huge issue that likely impacted his entire life, a parent who enables their child's horrible behavior instead of reprimanding it. If this is happening in, in Issei's 20s, it likely happened throughout childhood as well, making him feel like he can do really anything without punishment or having to show self-restraint. Daddy's money will just make all his mistakes and monstrous acts go away. After the home invasion, he does briefly visit a psychiatrist and tells the psychiatrist about his cannibalistic fantasies. As any good psychiatrist would do, they classify Issei Sagawa as highly dangerous after hearing these details from him. Once again, his enabling father flies to the rescue, conjures up a cover-up story to explain that his son didn't really mean what he said, and never takes his son back to the psychiatrist again. His dad even recommends that his son go to attend college in some other city or area to evade rumors or the psychiatrist making this any more serious or anything like that. Issei, like I said, spent his entire childhood reading and exploring literature and poetry, and he's known to be extremely intelligent. Throughout the story that I've been telling you, I left out the details that by the time he had broken into the woman's home, he also has earned bachelor and master's degrees in literature. His master's is earned in English literature at Kangaku University in Japan, and he also strives to earn his PhD. So he applies to attend a highly ranked university in Japan, kind of like a Japanese version of Ivy League schools in the US, but he fails the entrance exam and is not accepted to this school. So as a backup option, Issei wants to travel and study abroad far away from Japan. So instead he applies and gets accepted and travels to Paris, France to attend Sorbonne University studying PhD language and literature. Important to note, this move obviously takes him very far away from anybody who knows about his cannibalistic ideations or his attempt to break into a woman's house to cannibalize her. Mm, that's true. It's a fresh start. Plus, all the ads about him would have been in Japanese, so these people wouldn't be able to read it. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if there were ads about him, but any records, psychiatric records, mm -hmm. anything like that. They're not going to be transferred between Japan and France, especially back in the 70s. So Issei begins his PhD journey in 1977 at Sorbonne University. He's 28 years old, and this is about four years after he broke into the German woman's home in Japan. His new home, Paris, is a massive, world-renowned city, and with huge cities comes easy access to sex workers. Issei is still living every day with cannibalistic desires running rampant in his mind. 
when he looks at a woman, instead of thinking, I want to sleep with her, or I want to ask her on a date, or kiss her, or hold her hand. Instead, he has an insurmountable craving to ascertain what they taste like, what their flesh tastes like. These thoughts are escalating now that he's in Europe, surrounded by women that he is admittedly highly attracted to. And like many killers that we've heard of, he believes that he can finally carry out his fetish dreams with a sex worker, and maybe this would prove less difficult than other options. So he begins bringing sex workers home with him, usually at least once weekly, but sometimes and often on a nightly basis. Wow. His intention when he brings them home is to shoot the women and cannibalize them in following days, but every single time that he gets an opportunity to and he is actually holding his gun, he freezes up and cannot bring himself to pull the trigger. And this keeps recurring over and over for years. For years? For years. He's in this PhD program in France for a long time. By his fourth year in the literature PhD program at his university, it is 1981, and despite his shy personality, he's developed some acquaintanceships with classmates who have absolutely no clue about his disturbing thoughts and fetishes. One of his friends at the university is a woman named Renee Hartfelt. Renee is not only a tall, beautiful woman, she is also extremely intelligent and ambitious. She's trilingual, she is fluent in her native language of Dutch, then German, and French as well. She, like Essay, is earning her PhD in literature and is an immensely accomplished woman, all by the age of 25 years old. Well, Essay is struggling to learn German, or so he says, and specifically needs assistance translating some German poetry for a graduate project. Renee is fluent in German and doesn't struggle with it at all, So Issei explains to Renee, hey, I've been struggling with learning this. It doesn't come naturally to me. My father is rich. He says he'll pay for me to get a tutor. Would you want to help me learn German? And this ambitious young lady, she's excited about the prospect of a side hustle. You're poor in grad school. That's got to be exciting. So she agrees to tutor Issei occasionally, although Issei has already made several romantic advances on her, which were all turned down. She still decided to be friends with him, hang out with him, and tutor him. So the time Issei is able to spend with Renee is the closest that he has ever been to a female, and he's allowing his cannibalistic thoughts to run wild at this point. The repulsive fantasy that's been festering in his mind is finally manifesting. He has 32 years of intrusive thoughts in the making and finally views this mentorship with Renee as his shining moment to taste human flesh. He actually states that he wants to absorb Renee's energy that he lacks. He has spent years of his life viewing himself as unattractive, weak, shrimpy, and he wants to eat and absorb the beauty and the strength and the intelligence of his 25-year-old classmate. It sounds theatrical, but this is what he says. So on the night of June 11, 1981, Issei invites Renee to his apartment for dinner and for help with translating poetry. This will be the last night of Renee Hartfelt's life. As she is sitting at a desk reading poetry, Issei picks up his rifle and he pulls the trigger. Dang. The gun misfires. Oh, that's awkward, dude. And so he describes this moment saying he is freaking out. He is in a frenzy at this point and he is absolutely going to pull the trigger again. Mm. Like that's kind of the point of no return when your gun misfires. Yeah. 
While some may think, hmm, maybe this is a sign that I shouldn't do this. Maybe I shouldn't kill this person. Like I said, he's running on adrenaline and he's allowing his vile fantasies to control his body and mind. He's telling himself, this is my chance. This is what I've been waiting for. So he pulls the trigger again, shooting Renee in the neck, the back of her neck, killing her immediately. The realization that he just took someone's life is actually so overwhelming to him at this point that he loses consciousness after the murder. He passes out. He just out. blacks out. Yeah. Okay. After regaining consciousness, not sure how long he was passed out, for a split second, he considers calling an ambulance. But like I said, he realizes this is the moment that he has been excitedly waiting for and dreaming about throughout his 32 disgusting years of life and that he needs to seize this opportunity. There's a part of him that realizes in this moment that this is really the only friend that he's ever had. Mm. But at the same time, he still decides to just move forward with it. He doesn't yeah. really care. He is later quoted as saying that he was determined to eat someone before he got too old and before the passion died out. The next few minutes of details are graphic, guys. They're deeply disturbing. All right, I'll be right back. I don't blame you if you <laughs> want to walk out. This is a warning to you guys. I actually had trouble writing this story and had to take several breaks during this part. So I'm going to move forward now. After Renee has been murdered, Issei sexually assaults her corpse. I cannot bring myself to say the R word in this part of the story, but it becomes clear during this time that Issei is a monstrous necrophiliac in addition to being a cannibal. He also begins to bite into her skin right after she dies, and he becomes frustrated because he realizes that his teeth are not sharp enough to accomplish the job. So he leaves the apartment to purchase a butcher knife. After returning to the apartment, he makes his first cut into her, and the moment that he sees red meat, he pops a piece into his mouth. He calls this the most historical moment of his life. This is the first time that he has ever actually tasted human meat, and it is from her glutes. Then he spends the next three days in his apartment dismembering her corpse, removing about 15 pounds or seven kilos of her body to eat, of her muscle. The disgusting monster later recalls being upset that Renee was on her period because he didn't like the smell of the menstrual blood and it made that part of her body inedible to him, which he had previously been specifically looking forward to eating. So he was angry with her because of this. One of the most disturbing parts of this story is that over this three-day period, Issei is taking photos of every single step in his cannibalistic process. And my innocent eyes were not prepared for these photos to be carelessly plastered all over the internet, easily breaking the record of the most disturbing thing I have ever laid my eyes on. I don't know if you've noticed that I have not eaten meat in the last 24 hours. And it is indescribably disturbing that a human being can have the desire to carry out something this vile. Not only is it horrible to think about it, but to actually carry it out on anyone is disgusting. He is a monster. He is a demon. He eats most of Renee's face, neck, breasts, thighs, and feet. He does this both raw and cooked. He says mostly raw. He says that his jaw ends up killing him, hurting really badly from how thick human meat apparently is. 
The parts that he couldn't eat in the moment, he saved in his refrigerator. He continues to sexually defile Renee's body while listening to a recording of the poem that Renee was reading when she was murdered. Throughout the three days, he's doing this over and over. Of course, the body has begun decomposing at this point after a few days, smelling horrid, and he feels the need to get the remains out of his apartment. So Issei puts the remaining pieces of her body in two suitcases and makes his way out of the apartment, calls a cab, and rolls the suitcases to a nearby park in Paris that has a lake that is pretty secluded. This park has had its fair share of shady things go down in it, drug sales and drug consumption, sex work, you name it, and people around this park have learned to be observant here. So when they see a five-foot-tall, small-framed, very memorable-looking Japanese man dragging two suitcases that are dripping red liquid out of them, authorities are notified pretty quickly. Issei tries to quickly dispose of the suitcases in the park and then flees back to his apartment, although he's already been observed by a multitude of witnesses. Police are able to track Issei down at his apartment and arrest him for the first-degree murder on June 13th, soon after he dropped the suitcases in the park. When police arrest and question him, asking why he did such a disturbing, morbid thing to Renee, I mean, I cannot even imagine being on the police force and walking into the apartment and finding that. So when they ask him why they did this to Renee, he simply states that he just wanted to taste human flesh. And instead of expressing remorse, he says that his only regret about Renee is that he hadn't eaten her while she was alive. He claims that his ultimate intention was to eat her living flesh. So he was upset that he had to kill her first. Yeah. Because Issei is a Japanese citizen but committed the murder and cannibalization in France, this makes legal processes complex and take a bit longer than usual. He ends up being held in a French prison for two years awaiting trial, with psychological examinations being performed on him. When trial finally takes place in 1983, the judge Jean-Louis Brugera declares him legally insane due to psychological examination results and orders him to be held in a mental institution indefinitely. Indefinitely? Not prison. Because he is legally insane, (laughs) he's he's not sentenced to prison. And mental institutions are notorious for being horrible places to spend your remaining days. Yes, they are. So this could be a good punishment, right? At at that point. Yeah, but that's not a good punishment. Let me tell you why. Is he going to eat a mental patient? Once Issei is sent to a Japanese mental institution to live there indefinitely, the Japanese psychiatrists declare him sane. Uh oh. They're saying that the murder was driven by sexual perversion, not by insanity. True. Because the charges against Issei had been dropped in France, those court documents are not given to Japanese authorities because they are considered sealed. And because of some legal loopholes in Japan associated with this and the fact that he is considered legally sane in this country, on August 12th, 1986... Five years after the brutal murder and cannibalization of Rene Hardevelt, Issei is allowed to just check himself out of the mental institution and walk out as a free man in Japan. That is insane. Literally no other legal consequences. They had to have, they've fixed that since then. 
I guarantee they must have those loopholes <laughs> do not exist. Yeah. So he wow. has complete freedom to live out the rest of his life as a free person. No parole, no nothing, no probation. When you think it couldn't get worse than this demon getting off scot-free, you are wrong. Mm. Issei straight up becomes a celebrity in Japan. A notorious celebrity, of course, but a celebrity nonetheless. He walks around free and completely unashamed of his crime in France just five years prior. Of course, people refuse to employ a cannibal, but he still finds other ways to earn a living and notoriety. This man writes a graphic novel reminiscing upon the disturbing details of his murder and cannibalism of Rene. It's titled In the Fog. Do not go and buy that novel or any of the 20 plus novels that he publishes over the years. Do not purchase anything that may profit this man or his family. In addition to this novel, Issei Sagawa writes a manga-style comic book, again, about his murder and cannibalism. Really? Apparently, the words in his book aren't sufficient. Not the manga. He has to curse the world by drawing is there, out the Is there going to be an details. anime of it come out? So, the disturbing details of his murder is in image form as well. This comic book is graphic. And think about it. Issei never got attention growing up. He always felt insecure, invisible, ignored. And the attention given to him is a high. And to him, even negative attention is still attention. And he never had that until now. So he keeps doing any strange things that he can. Or agrees to interviews just to keep the attention coming. In addition to authoring these horrible books, he becomes a food critic for a <laughs> while. Okay. Of specifically sushi. He acts as a guest speaker several times. Issei goes on to create paintings of naked women as well, which are then featured in art magazines. The fame continues, and he doesn't stop here. The next one is a real kicker. He also makes star appearances in pornographic films. I cannot even begin to fathom how messed up those films must be and how screwed in the head the producer is who invited him but he is known to be acting as a sexual predator and is seen biting actors in these films. Additionally, multitudes of media members are conducting interviews with this man from the moment that he is set free from the mental institution in Japan, and this spans throughout years and decades after his release. Japanese media, international media, people from all over the globe continuously interview and sometimes idolize this cannibal. Years after the murder, he even has an interview that you can watch with Vice in 2013, where he says, I think they would taste delicious, while he's looking at posters of different women, clearly having zero regrets and not a sprinkle of a conscience throughout all of these years. But I will say, the one plus side from all of the attention and interviews is getting to understand the mind of someone like this, to understand their childhood, and understand possible drivers of the madness maybe understand the source of how someone becomes the person that he became. From all the interviews, I'm going to share just a few quotes with you to show just what kind of a man Issei Sagawa is. First of all, he's not scared of death and he actually has a really weird sexual excitement about the idea of dying, specifically a woman killing him in some way. Mm. So he says, quote, I would like to invite any woman who wants to kill me to step forward. Beautiful women only. That would be the ideal way for me to die. 
Maybe they can shoot me up with morphine so that I don't feel any pain. Although I guess the pain is part of the pleasure. Dying instantly is boring, so I want to savor the process of being killed. An alternative would be to drown in female saliva. Wouldn't it be wonderful to be covered all over in women's spit? If I could die drowning in it, that would be my ultimate dream come true. I'm a cowardly man who killed another person, yet I can't face killing myself. So I guess dying at the hands of a woman would be my way to redemption. End quote. And I feel like I don't even need to comment on this quote. It speaks for itself. So additionally, Essay asks one interviewer to specifically call to the public for young, beautiful women who may want to be eaten by him and to send them his way. A PSA. Yeah. He says that if men truly knew how great human meat tastes, that all hell pandemonium would break loose in the world and men would just be eating women all the time. Issei also says his biggest regret in life is not murdering, defiling a corpse, or eating a friend. The regret of his life is that he wasn't able to give his father a grandchild. Good. We don't need that walking around the earth. Nope. That needs to be done. The last detail I'll mention is that he wishes that he had received a death penalty or life in prison where at least they would clothe and feed people. He says that the moment that he pulled the trigger, he knew that he was no longer a human being. He says that after the release from jail, he has constantly been monitored by society, by every single person, every neighbor, and explains that it has been brutal hell to try to find ways to make a living, to find a place that will let a homicidal cannibal necrophiliac live there, and to always be viewed as the monster that he is every single time that he walks around or goes anywhere in public. He says that the publicity has been hard on him because it has made it impossible for him to kill or cannibalize any other woman because he'd be caught. So instead, he spends his time drinking women's urine and spit that women apparently willingly donate to him and have been donating to him throughout the years. Yeah, I believe it. This world's messed up, dude. I'm not going to share any more of his quotes. If you're interested, there is much more information online. Like I said, do not purchase his books. Do not put any money towards that family or anything like that. But there is more information online. There's more vile, detailed information online. And as disgusting as this story has been, I really only brushed the surface of the disturbing details that he has disclosed about his crimes and that I read. He has interviews if you really want to jump down that rabbit hole. Thankfully, Issei Sagawa is not just bopping around with great health and with no cares in the world. He struggles greatly with numerous health issues as he ages, including suffering from diabetes, two heart attacks, and a pretty severe stroke resulting in necrotic brain tissue, which collectively placed him in a wheelchair. Mm, hard he, to eat people in a wheelchair. He spends the last portion of his life living with his brother, June, outside of Tokyo, who helps take care of Issei when needed. June is also known to have a fetish where he wraps barbed wire around his arms to create wounds and then uses sharp objects and tools to dig into the wounds created by the barbed wire. Definitely leads me to believe that something sinister happened in their childhoods that they never disclosed or explained in interviews or to the public. But anyways, finally, on November 24th, 2022, this is fresh news. This is two months ago. Issei Sagawa dies of pneumonia at 73 years old. Cool. 
And I'm happy to say that he did not get to die by drowning in a pool of women's saliva like he wanted. Now the people of Japan finally do not have to worry anymore about the creep cannibal lurking around them and wondering how their meat tastes. Issei Sagawa is free no more. And although he has not been arrested for any more murders or cannibalistic acts, nobody knows if that's because Rene Hartvelt was his last victim or if he just learned how not to get caught. Mm. And it's probably best that we never know the answer to that question. Well, I'm speechless. Thank you, Lee, for that. You're welcome. That was a horrible story. What we do know is that Issei took the life of a strong, friendly, poetic, sophisticated, beautiful, and immensely intelligent young woman named Renee, all to fulfill a vile sexual fantasy. After multitudes of people socially rejected this man, Renee was kind enough to befriend him, to give him attention, to help him academically, and to genuinely take interest in him as a human being and have dinner with him, and all of that to have her precious life stolen away. Her family has stayed out of the spotlight to mourn the death of their dear daughter in peace, although they fought as hard as they could to have Issei tried for murder in Japan, sadly to no avail. We made it through, guys. Rest in peace, Renee Hartfelt, and thank you all for listening. I hope that I didn't leave you too disturbed today. Tune in next Thursday for another wild story, and we will always keep it spooky season for you. Bye. Later. Later.